Thanks again for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. A big shout out to the LAC team for organizing co-figurations this year, namely Camilla Gutierrez, Michael DeLeo, Merve Shen, Rosemary Avist, and Hannah Matangos. Be first in the know about upcoming events, get involved, and keep in touch with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at LibArtsCo. That's L-I-B-A-R-T-S-C-O. Hello, everyone. My name is Mara Shen, and I welcome you on behalf of the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State University. Today, we gather for the second round of the LEX interdisciplinary event series entitled Configurations. And this is the configurations of care, experience, and infrastructure in the medical humanities. Considering that we left two years behind with the COVID-19 pandemic, and every day is very much marked not only by the pandemic, but also other health conditions, as well as the accelerating climate crisis and the ever-aggressive loop of neoliberal and discriminative regimes, talking about care and health is probably more vital than ever today, as both of these notions speaks to the ways in which we relate and inhabit the world. So we want to invite you to rethink the entanglements between body, environment, infrastructure, culture, and governmentality together with the experiences and works of our three presenters. Please uh, join me to welcome, in order of presentation, Victoria Lupescu, Anna Urik Andersen, and MK Sorvi. And today our presenters actually talk about many different genres, forms, and media of art and architecture, and how actually can art and architecture help us to engage with care and health in different ways, other than considering health as, as it's imposed by normative, gender, racialized, and commercialized health systems. So without further ado, I want to introduce our first presenter, Victoria Lepashku. Victoria is an assistant professor of comparative literature and Asian studies at University of Montreal. Her research interests comprise 20th and 21st century Chinese, Romanian, and Brazilian literature and film, medical humanities, and visual culture. Her work explores how writers, directors, and artists engage with and produce medical narratives to unveil hidden histories of cultural, economic, and social disposability. She has published articles in peer-reviewed journals such as Humanities, Chinese Literature, Essays, Articles, Reviews, and in edited collections such as The Portrait of an Artist as a Photographer on Writing Illnesses and Illnesses in Writing. Welcome, Victoria. Floor is yours. Thank you so much, Merve, and thank you everyone for putting this together. And, you know, it's been an incredible series of events and podcasts and talks and conferences. So, you know, I'm very, very grateful for your invitation, for allowing me to be part of it and to present my work here today. And of course, I thank my co-panelists and everyone that, you know, joined us today. I will share my screen if possible, because I want to show you a few images. Okay, so um, I, I hope to that my presentation will be under 15 minutes, so for us to, to have uh, enough time for, for Q&A, and of course I'm looking forward to, to your feedback. I'll start with a brief presentation of the project itself, and then I'll go into to more details. 
So as the WHO recognized the novel coronavirus as an active risk that could catalyze a global disaster, and as the COVID-19 pandemic reorganized all our lives, borders have closed and remain closed to this day in many parts of the world. Uh, that means that uh, for many of us, access to archives and research in Asia was and is off the table for an indefinite amount of time, while the ethical and institutional impulses and demands for research are very much on the table. The idea for this project came in multiple rounds, and the first was um, the time when during several periods of quarantine in Canada and Romania, during moments of epistemic confusion triggered by the new practices of booking an ambulance in Romania, in instances of de facto closure of the Canadian medical system to legal or illegal immigrants, and in attempts of understanding the phenomenological and systemic scale of lockdown in China. So meant to be a comparative study and tentatively entitled The Biopolitics of Living Under a Pandemic, the project uh, studies the aesthetic and biopolitical implications and developments proposed by works of literature, art, and film completed during periods of isolation and quarantine during COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'll be presenting one part of this project that brings to the fore the relationship between commonly held conceptualization of urgent care and its materialization through the ambulance and through the urgent care services, and symptomatic patients whose condition worsened and needed care, but who could not access emergency services in Eastern Europe. And today I'll focus on Romania. While time uh, as a structuring and structural concept lost its grounding during different states of emergency and lockdown periods, and even more so during self isolation and isolation, self and quarantine, I argue in this part that the pandemic has changed the literal purviews and the temporality of the ambulance, the car and the services, uh, and emphasized its importance in healthcare studies and medical humanities. From a space of transition and quick life-saving care as seen in its embodiment of the hospitals and the health system's metaphorical extension, this location became a permanent and unreachable intersection of thin hope and isolation. The stay at home and be well slogans have claimed space in most countries where they also unveil the deep inequalities of gendered, unpaid, underpaid, and exploitative practices constituted under the umbrella named care. The stay at home mandate implies the existence of a home of architectural and social support for its effective smooth functioning. At the same time, it excludes large amounts of population and further entrenches domestic practices into what Mike Laufenberg and Susanne Schultz have called care familialism. Well, there the term isolation and quarantine designates slightly different practices in response to potential different triggers. In this paper, I'm engaging with the context in which patients were symptomatic, isolating with or without families in their homes and in need of social and medical support and attention. For these cases, neighbors, relatives, or volunteer groups have collaborated. Here we can see in the picture to, to the left-hand side a testament to this collaboration. Taken by a neighborhood volunteer, this picture is part of the Fragile Identities COVID-19 Museum uh, in Bucharest and is posted online uh, in their gallery next to this other picture to your right-hand side, which follows the trajectory of the bag's content into the house. The bottle on the right-hand side of the slide was full with uh, liquid soap, and on the outside it contains the owner's expression of feelings while ill and using the liquid soap. The writing reads from top to bottom, peace, emotion, dream, hope, desire, happiness, fear, faith, are you okay, seeing others again, and makes references to a blog called The Poisoned Blog. 
a blog. By mere proximity, the writing in red stands in relation to the mini bottle filled with poison, and the entitled installation recreates a type of truncated mizenabim to comment on the person's affective state and their dynamics during this isolation. The entry for this picture at the museum suggests that he did not actually need emergency care and his neighbor's help was sufficient, illustrating thus the efficiency of what the UK-based care collective proposed and called a care economy. Although there are many problematic aspects here, such as the imposed social conformity of a family with members ready to quarantine and provide care, the successful overcoming of the 14-day or so reinforced the political direction of the stay-at-home mandate and it's discursively uh, provided its efficacy, leaving aside the effective aspects and the potentiality of urgent care needed. For many others, the ad hoc and grassroots solidarity systems prove inefficient. And that brings us to the ambulance issue I want to emphasize today. In all legislation, from local codes of conduct to national and global public health laws, these services are described as essential to patient survival and good health outcomes in an emergency, but absolutely temporary, and during a natural, even during a natural disaster, a large-scale accident, or a state of emergency. The ambulance fleet, from the least to the best equipped, is designed to accommodate patients for short amounts of time and cannot, by law and by practice, offer an environment conducive to healing or long-term health improvement. For these reasons, in the few existing cultural studies, such as uh, John Bush's thesis on ambulance services in British Columbia, Canada, the ambulance with its staff and its siren is depicted as the hospital's extension, the first tier of a specialist care that eases the family's responsibility and worry and brings immediate relief to the patient. Also, as an aside, it is at the encounter with the ambulance staff or the paramedics that the suffering person becomes a patient, which changes their ontological standing in relation to the healthcare system and their agency regarding their own bodies. But in this uh, cultural and social understanding and representation remains tightly connected to the hospital. One other important characteristic of medical uh, systems in many other countries experiencing different scale transition processes from socialized to privatized medicine is the scarcity of resources available to the public, as well as the lack of preparedness for epidemics and pandemics. With this in mind, it's no news that Romanian hospitals, just like in most countries in the world, struggled a lot during the first four waves with lack of resources. And I won't go through the whole list here, but, you know, I was thinking about intensive care beds, respirators, ventilators, PPI, cleaning supplies, etc. And these hardships have spilled over in many directions and triggered important transformations in the conceptualization of places for and of care. While I'm sure that these examples are not particular to Romania, I want to use them to open up a conversation about the ambulance as a space of healthcare that defines patients' paths their health outcomes, and their identity in relation to the system they are trying to access. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the ambulance gained much more visibility as a unique space of negotiation, a transitional mobile place that became unavailable or lost its mobility once the hospitals reached capacity. Before going any further, I should mention that there are two main aspects here. First, the unavailability of an ambulance, which brought about booking practices for such a service, and secondly, the availability of the ambulance as the sole place of health care as beds became extremely scarce in the ICU. I'll first engage with the second aspect, and then I will naturally come back to the, to the first as they are interconnected. So the ambulance's team main goal is patient assessment and their transport to the hospital while administering initial care. 
Um, however, during the pandemic, the ambulance inhabited, inhabited a different ontological identity. It became the only space where patients could receive oxygen and little else. The long lines of ambulances waiting for their patients to be admitted became even longer as time passed and no beds became available. In other words, nobody else died. Faced uh, with difficult decisions, doctors from the northern part of the country have decided to go out of the hospitals, assess and initiate treatment, and monitor the patients in the ambulances as the cars became impromptu replacements for intensive care units. This theatrical performance of a clinical space without resources has uh, had a limited viability as the cars were not equipped with large supplies of medical oxygen, monitors, emergency kits, or personnel could perform intubations or any other complex procedures. Also, the overcrowding of ambulances with up to five patients sitting on a bed designed for one patient worsened the conditions. It is only the type C ambulances in Eastern Europe that uh, replicate an intensive care unit, but those are fewer and some of them had to be put on standby for other potential casualties or accidents. As we can see from the image, the reduced space designated for rapid transit raised challenges for the professional team and the patient or patients, as isolation or proficient protection were close to impossible. Moreover, the long wait time impacted the amount of heat generated by and in the car, and that created intense discomfort to already suffering patients. Thus, flexible solutions met the ambulance's inflexible interior architecture, which fueled small amounts of hope for rapidly deteriorating patients and their families. To this, the wait time in line was contradictory to a typical crisis-induced response. And it challenged the patient's effective perception of time and care as they waited as the hospital's entrance with more care than at home, but less than what they needed. When met with theory and critical distance, this in-betweenness brings to mind the harm reduction approach, not in its initial form related to drug use and its social, cultural, and medical managing, but from an improvisational standpoint of non-abandonment. Nurses, doctors, and all the auxiliary staff have worked more than any time before to cover shifts and tend to patients. And one, one resident says, uh, when you see the, um, and I'm going to show you, when you see the innumerable ambulances waiting at the entrance, you can't go home. Uh, you leave only all the work is done, stated a resident in one of the hospitals in the country's capital. His somewhat optimistic view coming from his experience in the country's most specialized hospitals states that work finishes, but it just takes longer now. But the long lines of ambulances did not disappear at the end of the day, and many spend the night and the next day waiting to be uh, hospitalized. Sometimes they waited even longer. And the image the resident drew uh, right with his head spinning conveys his tiredness, his burnout, and the derailed trains of thought, and, but his good intentions as well as his speech implies a relativization of work's endpoint. And here you, you see the, the personal cars, and I put the translation here when someone asks someone else in the car, since when have you been here? And they say yesterday. So uh, then that becomes a relative and relativizes what the, the resident says here. And, you know, we can put that in perspective with the image that he drew. So with, with that, with the addition of, and of course, we had the addition of constantly changing protocols, trying to catch up with the virus's manifestation, the tiredness, the burned out. And in that case, work amassed to long lines of patients and ambulances at most ERs in this geographical location. 
Harm reduction in this case meant helping people to continue breathing, the ambulance's oxygen tanks or the ones added from inside the hospitals becoming conditions of care in such a crisis. Going back to the first dimension of emergency care, we all know that ambulance fleets consist of a set number of cars calculated attentively in relation to the number of population and economic strength. But by logical progression, their flocking at the ER's entrance produced the ripple effect of leaving the rest of COVID-19 cases and other emergencies without a response. In this case, any access to emergency care stopped in its tracks, with a slim chance of private hospitals accepting non-COVID cases if the patients could make it on their own to their respective locations. Their shutdown emphasized the rupture in the social contract between patients and the health system, tacit agreement further challenged by the booking system. People showing moderate symptoms, self-assessed, could book an ambulance to come in the next three or more days in the hope that they could hold on until then without specialized care. Moreover, as we have seen, being on an ambulance does not guarantee a spot in the ER or in the ICU. While hopeful at its basis, the booking system contains problematic aspects. The dispatcher acknowledges the symptoms and the emergency as they make the booking, but the acting upon this knowledge is delayed to a later date. The projection of symptoms evolution, which could inform the ill and the professional of the amount of time someone could wait for medical care, responsibilizes the individual and indicates hospitals and ambulances' material limits. The creation of such a system, uh, although it was short-lived, takes us once more into the harm reduction theory's direction and more immediately underscores the importance of material resources and their management in a pandemic. It shows how hope can be managed in times of intense extended crisis and how conceptual categories such as patient, urgent care, ambulance, life, and access lost most of their heuristic and critical capabilities during the multiple pandemic waves. By way of conclusion and recalibrating the pandemic's uh, definition in contrast to a disaster uh, or a a catastrophe, it is clear that the wave's temporality uh, made it close to impossible for any epistemic category to hold and continue to describe reality in a palpable way. The architecture of emergency care could not accommodate a crisis of the spatial and temporal magnitude, while impromptu management of care saw the ambulance as a clinical space that needed to exceed its transitional status. Isolation as an intersectional pivot that goes beyond its primary medical meaning negatively illustrates its entanglements with different instances of care and brings up questions about biopolitical and necrobiopolitical measures for living through a pandemic. With this in mind, I want to reiterate in closing the importance of analyzing the role ambulances, economies of care, and isolation practices play in negotiations over time, life, material resources, and overarching togetherness. Lastly, thinking from this transitional space where the hospital's effective extension materializes into palpable interactions with the patient, it becomes necessary to consider this plurality of nuances and factors in need of attention from our scholarship in humanities at large and medical humanities in particular. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Victoria. Especially, it's uh, very mind refreshing your invitation to think about the different scales of health and actually health in motion especially in terms of the ambulance, because, I mean, the spaces and temporalities of care is not fixed, really. So I think your point to architecture of health also just brings us to the presentation of Anna as well. 
Anna Ureke Andersen, a Norwegian architectural historian and filmmaker, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Disobedient Building Projects, University of Oxford, and junior research fellow at Wilson College. She holds a PhD in architecture from the Bartlett School of Architecture, where she looks at the window in the life and work of Christian Norbach Schulz, resulting in the book Following Norbach Schulz and Architectural History through the essay film, published by Bloomsbury Publishing in February. In 2018 and 19, she had a fellowship at Harvard Film Study Center, where she began exploring filmmaking, sculpture, and essay writing as methods to investigate the architecture experienced by people living with chronic illnesses. The project was recently selected for a fellowship at Future Architecture European Architecture Program 2021, leading to the exhibition Chronic Conditions by the End Building, commissioned and organized by Lisbon Architectural Triennial. In 2022 and 23, Anderson will continue to develop this project within the institutional framework of uh, Rome Gallery for Art and Architecture in Oslo. Thank you very much uh, for that introduction. And I think now also I'm sharing my slides. It's a pleasure being here. I mean, it would have been lovely to meet everyone in person, but it's also one of the things with, with this Zoom um, events and conversations is that it's it's also easier to to connect across across borders. So I will I will talk a little bit about uh, some of the projects that was mentioned in this uh, introduction that, that falls under this umbrella that I like to call an A to X of chronic illness. Uh, and this is a project that I started then in 2017-18, starting to explore then space architecture and plays ex uh, experienced by people who live with chronic illness. And it's currently a series of films, currently also a series of written essay and other creative interventions, such as this exhibition that you will hear about. A couple of hours before the exhibition opens, I lie down on the blue bed made from thick woolen fabric my head supported by a slim rectangular pillow. Above me, large off-white sheets of the same fabric are attached to two rails in the ceiling. On this hanging sail, I watched a film on being and bathing, made in collaboration with the disabled London-based poet, Abby Palmer. In the film, she talks about her bathroom and how her stiff joints and achy muscles experience relief when soaking in a bath. Yet the council refused to put the bath in her accessible flat. And accessible flats must have showers, not tubs, to be considered accessible. So Palmer buys an inflatable bathtub to treat her chronic conditions. In her everyday life, Palmer navigates a home that is not built for her, a chronically ill body, in negotiation with architecture. Also, I long for a bath as I stretch out on the floor while I recover my strength before the exhibition opens. For my body, taking a bath means that um, I don't have to experience pain in quite the same way as when I'm uh, not in water. Um, there's something about the lack of gravity that uh, my body really enjoys, like 
the fact that my my body can completely surrender and begin to float is a really important relief for me in my experience of pain. Then when I started writing Sanatorium and thinking about my experiences around water, I started to wonder if I could possibly resemble water, like force myself to resemble water and become more fluid um, because my, my experience of the world is so fluid, it can change so quickly. As much as I want to be slippy and fluid, I'm always, uh, my bones are always going to be there pushing back against me. And um, because my bones have caused me so much pain and my joints have caused me so much pain, I think I suddenly had this real horror of like, I will never fully be comfortable. I'm always going to have one spiking limb or one angry muscle. Um, and the idea that I couldn't be water and I would never dissolve, no matter how much time I spend in water, I will never fully merge with water, became really painful to me. Um, does that make sense? So uh, this was um, an excerpt of this film, which in full length is, is nine minutes, where I film Abby in her bathroom and uh, respond as well to, to her uh, novel, Sanatorium, that came out in 2020. And um, it was being screened then in the ceiling of this exhibition in, in Lisbon. And, and the task that I was given as the curator of the exhibition that was a commission organized by the Lisbon Architecture Triennial and it was designed by Atelier Sensu, a French architecture firm. The task I'd been given was to revisit a series of collections across Europe all being part of this future architecture platform uh, and rethink those collections within, uh, well, under the heading Landscape of Care, which was previous year's platform, 2021. So told from a personal uh, perspective uh, and narrative of chronic rheumatic illness, I ask, how can the chronically ill body show different and alternative perspectives on the way our bodies respond to buildings? And in my longstanding exploration and interest within this, um, this field of the way architecture, chronic illness, disability kind of intersect. I quite often turn to, to scholar Joss Boris, who's an architect and theorist, who in, uh, in her books, Doing Disability Differently and also Disability Space Architecture, questions the way that the disabled body in architecture is quite often considered as an afterthought in the design process, meaning that it's quite often a very legal and technical problem that needs to be um, solved quite often with universal design principles. But what uh, Boyes argues is that, in fact, 
the the disabled body being used to navigate a world in ways that are different, creative, and unusual. It is in itself both of critical potential, but also of creative potential. So the disabled body should be brought into the entire design process, uh, making architecture not just better for people with disabilities, but but actually for, for everyone. So in this exhibition, I used then the patient perspective, both my own narrative with, with rheumatoid arthritis, but then also recent photographs and my own original films. I sent out disposable cameras to nine people in Norway who lives with chronic rheumatic illness. It's a follow-up project to something I did with a colleague on the Celia Boe, who's a journalist and documentary filmmaker, where just after COVID broke out, this was early 2020, we received funding from the Norwegian Arts Council to conduct uh, an interview series of people in Norway who uh, live with rheumatic illness and in normal circumstances would be receiving this uh, treatment as part of the governmental health service treatment uh, and and therapy and rehabilitation in warm climates. So Norway has been sending uh, patients to Montenegro and other warmer climates since, since the 1970s. So what we did in 2020 was that we interviewed people who usually travel, who now couldn't travel, and asked them about uh, the spaces that they were currently in, but also asked them to describe these spaces that uh, held the promise of a well-being, being these rehabilitation spaces in warmer climates. So I, uh, I continued with nine of these people, sending them disposable cameras, asking them to, to photograph their own homes. So starting from the chronically ill body, this exhibition focuses on the keywords F for fluids, J for joinery, O for openings, both in bodies and buildings. This framework, the incomplete alphabet, is used to revisit collections by participating European institutions, shedding new lights and material by architects and artists from 1822 to 1983. Moving from large scale infrastructures to homes, institutions, furniture, leisure space, and the anatomy of the body itself. Lying on the floor, watching the film projected on the fabric in the ceiling, I can tilt my head and look through the double doors into the first room that visitors arrive at, the room dedicated to A for architecture. In this room, I include photographs from the Portuguese photographer Mario Noves, kept in the art library at the Calusta Gulbenkian Foundation. A wheelchair, a hospital bed, and an operating table Our images were used to seeing in contexts related to illness, care, and health, and therefore displayed. Yet, when the patients are asked to photograph furniture that they find comfortable, or spaces where they rest, alternative chairs and beds are brought into light. Most of us who live with chronic illness experience these chronic conditions in the home, lying in bed or propped up on the sofa lives with chronic illness take place. We return back to the largest room of the exhibition, F for fluids. 
Water flows through landscapes, cities, and buildings, filling up our bathtubs, bringing from the taps, hydrating us when we drink from a glass. Our bodies can feel well hydrated or not, causing us to feel thirst or our mouths turn dry. Our limbs can swell after a night out or when inflamed or injured or when carrying a child. Norwegian patients photographs their homes. Showers, saunas, laundry rooms, water tanks, and swimsuits. Above the piece of furniture where the patient photographs are displayed, visitors can see the carefully drawn kidney from William Home Lizard's book, A Systems of Anatomical Plates of the Human Body from 1822, currently kept in the collections of the Royal Academy of Arts. Below are two of Lucia Mignot's 2019 photographs from river swimming in Basel, previously exhibited by SAM Basel. Between them is one of Carlos Scarpa's photographs from Japan in 1969, depicting a young boy peeing outdoors, kept in the collections of Moxie in Rome. Further along, a military hospital in North Macedonia from built between 1967 and 71 by Josip Oisnik, kept in Mao, Slovenia. From this room dedicated to the topic of fluids, visitor can continue to room theme J for joinery and O for openings. Exploring the different spaces and material exhibited in the exhibition designed by the French architectural firm Atelier Sensu. Here, David and Vandril move away from what is sterile and stable and offers an architectural design that itself is fluid and flexible and responds to a body that is chronically ill, playing on the non-visual repertoire of architecture and interiors. Sensu turned to Burrell Factory, a local wool manufacturer known for their durable fabric with acoustic properties. Each room in the exhibition shows a different design solution where the Burrell fabric hangs from the ceiling, walls or over wood constructions, and the exhibition contents are projected or printed directly on the wall. The space fills up with the smell of wool, welcoming, homely and warm. A stark contrast to the clean metallic clinical ideals of modernism. Walking back through the exhibition, a final room can be reached beyond the room dedicated to the letter A. This room is dedicated to the letter X, the unknown, and filled with books by authors and scholars who wish to push the discussion further. A typewriter is also available, reminding the audience how the alphabet stands as the building blocks of the production of knowledge in Western society but also gives the visitors the opportunity to share their own views. A complete A to Z guide into the thematic of chronic illness and architecture is not possible, and the alphabet presented remains incomplete. The exhibition highlights that the blueprint we have today is incomplete and should be developed further. Instead, we move from A to X, A for architecture to X the unknown future, showing the way chronic illness affects our experiences of landscapes, buildings, and infrastructures. As I am finished resting, I get up and walk out. 
My colleagues are waiting outside in the courtyard of the exhibition space, ready to celebrate the opening. We drink wine and discuss as we stake out a crip course for a new tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you for actually navigating us through this powerful project. And I think it's very much valuable to hear the voices of the patients themselves, because in the today's health discourse, one of the things very much debatable is the fact that we are not hearing history stories of the patients. And your reference to Joe's voice, how actually we can take disabled bodies as a reference point, uh, reminded me of Alvar Alto. In the design contest of the Paimo Sanatorium in Finland, actually Alto suggests that we should take the ill body as a reference point. We can't really think about the vertical notions in terms of architecture, but we need to think horizontal. I think it's very much important. Maybe we can be also one of our discussion points. Uh, think different shapes, turns, and fabrics of health make their way into the architecture, but also health discourse today. Let me introduce you our last presenter of the day, MK Servik, a nurse cartoonist, educator, and co-founder of the field of graphic medicine. She is the creator of Taking Turns Stories from HIV AIDS Care Unit 371, published by Graphic Mundi, a co-author of Graphic Medicine Manifesto, published by Penn State University Press, and the editor of the two-time Eisner Award-winning Menopause a Comic Treatment, published again by Graphic Mundi. MK is also the comics editor for the journal Literature and Medicine. She regularly teaches graphic medicine at Northwestern Medical School, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the University of Illinois Medical School, and the University of Chicago. She is an artist in residence at Northwestern Center for Medical Humanities and Bioethics. She has served as a senior fellow of the George Washington School of Nursing Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement, and a Will Eisner Fellow in Applied Cartooning at the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction. So thank you for being here, MK. Thank you so much. I'm just so fascinated by both of the presentations that um, I've just witnessed and I'm eager to discuss them, but they're just so fascinating and also makes me feel incredibly honored and grateful to be on this panel. I'm going to share my screen now. So I thought I'd just quickly just uh, talk about the field of graphic medicine very, very briefly, and then kind of focus the rest of the time I have on what graphic medicine as a community came together to do during COVID. As I mentioned, the field I work in is called graphic medicine, and that term was coined by physician and artist Ian Williams, and it refers to the interface between the medium of comics and the discourse of health, illness, disability, and caregiving. I want to make the point that, that the work of graphic medicine is happening in really interesting ways in a lot of places and a lot of different venues, but it involves really two things. The reading of comics, so predominantly nonfiction, although sometimes fiction, narratives by people living with illness and caregiving and disability um, that give us this amazing window into their experiences. And then teaching those and using those as text 
And then also the, the act of drawing, of making comics, uh, using drawing as a way of knowing, a way of learning, a way of exploring and coming to know and understand. So those are sort of the two registers on which graphic medicine works. And this is the panel from the Graphic Medicine Manifesto that colleagues and I put together. And this panel really kind of positions where I feel most passionate about this. I really believe that graphic medicine is in its own way revolutionary because those best positioned to represent illness and caregiving are those living with it. Um, and to the point that, that you just made, it is a way that if the people who are experiencing this are the ones who are defining the visual iconography, the text, the, the presentation of these situations and conditions, then we're really amplifying those voices through the drawings and through, through the pen. This is our website, graphicmedicine.org. And it's sort of a lot going on on this screenshot really shows you there's just really a lot going on in this field. Uh, there are exhibitions and conferences and events and resources. And basically uh, what we hope is that the website serves as a home for just about any area of care that you might be interested in. And if you're curious, if it has intersected with the medium of comics. And so you see the search bar on the top right there. You can search the site for something that you might be perhaps looking for to see if it exists in comic form. So I started making comics, not because I was the kid who drew my whole life. In fact, uh, you know, I drew these in my 30s. And so I was the kid who was told to stop drawing, to put your pens and crayons and markers away, even though I found using them and expressing myself with them incredibly helpful and useful and joy producing. I, you know, like many of us uh, are, was told when I could access words that I had to leave this behind. And these are three examples I don't expect you to read, but they're comics that really were some of the earliest comics I made uh, out of desperation. I was searching for a way to make sense of being a nurse in my late 20s and early 30s at the height of the AIDS crisis in Chicago. I found that a combination of image and text in sequential panels, which basically is comics, was an incredibly powerful tool and worked for me where words alone, like writing in a journal about very difficult things I was bearing witness to at work, did not work because it felt almost re-traumatizing to do that writing to process those experiences. Um, and images alone felt like they weren't telling the whole story. There was something about this combination that was incredibly powerful. So that's sort of my quick origin story of how I became a nurse and cartoonist. Eventually, um, while also kind of coming together with other people around the world who were doing this kind of work, the kind of bringing together the, the provision and experience of care um, with comic. I was also working on this book that eventually would become Taking Turns, which is a, a graphic memoir combined with an oral history of a particular AIDS unit in Chicago that I felt had a lot to offer in translation. Um, and also I had discovered was the sort of story of an archive of was lost to history. So I combined my own memoir in comic form in this book. So fast forward to COVID, during all of that time, so those number of years, somewhere around 10 years while I was working on the book and this graphic medicine movement was forming, an amazing community of people around the world, as I mentioned, were coming together to do this work. So by the time in March of 2020, when COVID was something that was happening, we really sort of were a hub for comics about COVID that were emerging. And we decided, uh, I was very animated by the fact that I had studied comics that were used during the AIDS crisis. And after trying to do some research, came to understand that many of them were lost to history. And I didn't want to see that happening. Obviously, we had the internet and a way to archive them. So my colleague, Alice Jaggers, who's a medical librarian, and I 
started kind of curating and collating COVID comics and, and several sites have done, uh, done this as well. And so there's a nice repository out in the world of these comics. And we started organizing them. Eventually there were too many to just have all of them on a page. And so we organized them into categories. And you can see the categories there are educational, by and about caregivers, by people living, who are going through COVID, comics that were aimed at coping and humor, comics that address the inequalities that were emerging because of COVID, that address ethical and social justice issues, comics that look at that moment, the moment of COVID, our current moment in a historic perspective. And then we have also brought together some non-comic visual resources. And eventually then we were able to gather both publications and presentations and then some vaccine-specific comics. Um, and again, this site on our website is by no means exhaustive. There are many COVID comics out there that we haven't cataloged. But that was one of the ways we responded. Another was to start thinking about, after we had so many comics together, thinking about the ways in which they were emerging. And so going all the way back to the early part of the, the pandemic, well, we noticed that early on, a lot of comics were emerging. These are by Grace Ferris, who a, a, was a physician in New York City at the time that they were this sort of what I call the first wave of COVID comics that were emerging a lot through social media by providers who happened to also be cartoonists and sort of in one way or another involved with graphic medicine. They were very short form, single or, or a couple of panels. And that they, as I said, em emerged really on people's social media feeds, like on Instagram and, and Twitter and, and things like that, and then got circulated in that way, which of course was a whole new way for us to sort of be disseminating this information, new relative to any prior epidemic or pandemic. And then they really felt like, as is the next wave that I'm going to mention, these sort of dispatches from the front line, which was a way to communicate what was happening inside of hospitals, which in, in some ways echoing the AIDS crisis and my recollection of it in that there was a disconnect between what was happening in hospitals, uh, where everything was so much of a crisis and obviously felt like it demanded immediate action. Yet what was happening out in the world in many places was like it wasn't a thing, right? Or even, you know, in our experience of COVID was denied as if it was actually real. And then it seemed like after a while, there was this sort of second wave of COVID comics. And these were collaborations often. So the cartoonist wasn't so much the provider who happened to also make comics, but they were these collaborations to tell these longer narratives, collaborations between providers, writers, illustrators. They were longer form, so they might just not be a single panel or two or three panels. And they appeared in much more mainstream media outlets, places where we hadn't seen comics before, like this one from NBC News or the NPR website or, play, or in the States and National Public Radio. So places where we weren't accustomed to seeing comics, because there was this immediacy of getting information communicated, it felt like uh, the, the medium was being turned to to do some of the work that text alone wasn't doing. But also these felt like dispatches from the front lines and in some ways as the pandemic unfolded in late 2020 and 2021, almost more urgent. And what you'll see is this consistency of imagery across many of them that come from this time period, which is uh, the, the singular body in a room filled with machines and perhaps another person kind of coming in with full protective gear and trying to be present very powerful and really upsetting images, right? You notice the absence more than the presence in some ways of the absence of family, the absence of, of support, this person sort of alone in the room uh, with a previously unknown caregiver. And then often the caregiver serving as surrogate for the family who's not there, whether it's through just telling them or, or actually through holding up more machinery, electronic devices. 
and again, these are, you know, these comics were able to go where cameras were not, or, you know, with, which is inside of these ICU rooms and can also navigate issues of representation by, um, you know, not violating HIPAA or the, you know, the, the duty to not expose people's personal information by using comic characters in their place. And then just a, another, just a couple of comments. Um, this is a very brief overview of looking at COVID comics from that moment. Uh, again, things have evolved since then. And I need to sort of take a look at the third wave, which I have yet to do that work. But I was very curious because I had paid attention to comics during the AIDS crisis, how the virus was personified and represented. And so I was very interested in both the colors and the shapes and contrasting that previously to, to like I said, how previous viruses had been sort of personified or drawn. And I was very interested when the virus itself was turned into a character and give, was given some sort of agency or was meant to make some rhetorical point, right? So the first example on the bottom there is from a, a WHO animation where it's given uh, this sort of vampiric quality. And the example next to that is by a pediatric nurse who is wanting to make it a lot less scary, but also something that you want to avoid, right? The third example was meant to have some sort of political overtones. And then the last one was just sort of like a, a gesture to kind of the humor that's possible, but also the threat. So I'm really, really interested in, in those registers. And there's much to be said there, but I, I'm going to move along. And of course, obviously, the metaphors, the metaphors that are used in how we are responding, the unavoidable, tempting, yet also complex and often troublesome metaphor of war uh, when it comes to particularly things in the immune system. And again, this is just a single image example. There's a lot more to be said and thought about in that regard. But I want to talk about something in terms of community and care and the ways in which graphic medicine became a space for care right here on Zoom. We normally have an annual conference, obviously in 2020 and 2021, we were not able to have annual conferences. And so we decided to, to really just as a, a board of the Graphic Medicine International Collective, ask the question like, what can we do? What can be helpful? How can we help the community of people around the world who can't physically gather? And so we started these sessions called Drawing Together. And early on, they were almost weekly, and then they were bi-weekly. And then we decided to go to monthly to make it a sustainable practice because the people who came really felt like it had a great deal of meaning. And what we had was we would have one person who started out as members of the board who come from very different disciplines within graphic medicine. This was one that Michael Green did around masking and kind of like hiding and sharing emotional state through our masks. And so people, you know, we tend to get about between, I don't know, 40 and 70 people at these sessions and interestingly have formed a community of their own. And we're on drawing together number 35 now. And we have a full archive on the website. If you look for this icon on the graphic medicine homepage, I also want to say that people in the community who are also teaching have found these to be really wonderful exercises that you can do with students. And in archiving them, we sort of try to have a little video that sort of explains what the exercise is and then share an example um, and, and give instructions. This has become a really powerful, in, in some ways I say like at this moment it has started to feel like the most important thing that we did was gave, and early on people who came to these sessions, some people were providers who had, who had gotten COVID and were isolated in one room of their home. And coming to these events was one of the few things they actually do could do to connect with other people, um, even within their own home, you know, because they were in isolation. So it became sort of an activity. And, uh, and again, we've continued this. And I'm quite proud of the work we've done there. 
the other thing was we we wanted to have a conference, but we couldn't have a conference. And uh, in 2021, we'd all sort of started already uh, realizing how intense our Zoom fatigue was. And so we thought, well, what is the essence of an academic conference or a comics conference? Or what is the essence of what we do when we come together? And we realized it broke down to just a simple question we ask one another year upon year, like, what are you working on, right? So what we invited the people around the world in our community to do was just submit a one-minute video, which is an interesting challenge to summarize complex work that we all do into a one-minute video. But you would be amazed uh, the ways in which people responded and were able to do that. And we had just sort of viewing sessions as our conference online. So we'd put panels of 10 on themes together and these sort of 10-minute sessions with breaks in between to just take in kind of what we were doing. And again, I, I think all of us on the graphic medicine board were incredibly proud of the work we did in our unconvention, as we called it. There were, in the end, 100 one-minute videos spread out over, over the course of uh, a weekend. And then lastly, as uh, the last portion of my, my presentation here, I wanted to turn to my own uh, comic making work. My, my book that I showed you, the original cover of, of Taking Turns came out in 2017. But in uh, 2020, for release in, in yeah, November of 2020, I was asked to write a new introduction to the book for a second edition that contextualizes it to COVID and sort of how I was thinking about my book about the AIDS crisis in light of COVID. And so I took a part of that introduction and I turned it into a comic form. And so I thought I would share that quickly today. When my book was published in 2017, I thought another sort of global epidemic or pandemic in my lifetime was unlikely. But in March of 2020, some flashbacks started. Full body protective gear embodying fear of contagion. Frontline caregivers as stand-ins for missing family members. Political scapegoating, cruelty in the face of suffering. Intense contrast between life in the hospital and out. Economic systems motivated by profit, even at the expense of lives. Caregivers, again, being patients in their own care units. There are major differences between the two outbreaks, of course, such as the route of transmission and the intense compression of the timeline, COVID versus AIDS, HIV. But many of the questions that inspired taking turns are as important today as they were then. How can frontline workers recover from the intensity of caregiving during a pandemic? Could this time be both terrible and utterly formative? How can we metabolize all of this trauma and not keep carrying it forward? And here I'm thinking of the work of Resma Menakim. What can we learn from how we coped or how we didn't? And here I'm thinking of Richard Canning's article, The Epidemic That Barely Was. And how has all of this changed our world? And how do we resist the urge to pretend that it didn't? Thank you. Thank you very much, MK, for this effective presentation. I think it's very powerful and just makes you pause and contemplate upon the situation now and 
you give us this comparison point with AIDS, but I think it's very powerful to hear again as uh, in Anna's presentation, this embodied experience-based uh, narrative, both visual and verbal. And actually I was reading, taking turns recently, and I think what you say there, especially in terms of this reciprocity between the staff, the nurses and patients, how powerful that is and how actually it can ju just change the trajectory of the notion of care. Of course, we have a question already. So I just want to pass into the audience. And I saw two questions from Charlotte. Charlotte has two questions to Victoria and MK. So I'm just going to read the first question to Victoria. I'm interested in hearing more from Victoria about how she sees private automobiles functioning alongside or in supplement to ambulances as a sort of privatization and extension of hospital space. Thank you very much for the question and thank you very much for, for the other two presentations. They were truly amazing. And I haven't thought about that. That actually, thank you, Charlotte, for bringing it up, because I thought that it was a way of supplementing indeed, but also a way of showing that the system reached capacity and that it didn't matter how you got in front of the ER, in front of the door, you still received the same treatment, which was just oxygen. And that was it. And of course, maybe there were a, there was a bit more more resource. There were a bit more resources in a better equipped ambulance, but the 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 response that the doctors could give was the same. So, and but then again, we can talk about actual equality and you know uh, access equal access to resources or lack of resources, uh, right? Because some people were indeed unable to be transported or you know have their families transported. But if they were transported, then you know, the, the drivers would uh, be uh, in danger of, you know, they were sitting for, for days with someone uh, symptomatic in their cars. I'll take that question and I'll think more about it as I, I continue the project. I still haven't looked at, uh, I, I actually got the, the comics for COVID in French from Switzerland, France, and Canada. And actually I was, you know, my question to, to MK was, you know, would they be interesting for your collection? Um, but you know, I haven't. It, it's great to to collect these these questions, and hopefully they will they'll bring more answers across right across the uh, across continents, uh, as opposed to just pinning it down onto Romania. Because, for example, in Switzerland, even if you know we would think that the standard and the response was different, there are representation of similar type of of events. Uh, not booking ambulances, but waiting in private cars. So I do believe it's a privatization, definitely, but it's also, you know, a response and a, a ripple of, of what was happening at the time. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. And Charlotte's second question to MK, then I will pass to uh, Rose and Camille for raising their hands. Charlotte is interested to hear how insights gained from looking at the sequential narratives in graphic medicine might shed light on some of the emotional and cultural work being done in the in and through AIDS quilts as something that might also be considered a variety of sequential narrative that can be assembled and disassembled. It's like a patchwork, maybe? Yeah, it is really interesting. Like, um, I'm just going to share my screen really quick. So. 
I just gave a presentation yesterday um, and I talk about the quilt. And of course, it's not lost on me that these are panels, right? As you point out, that are being assembled. This is when uh, it was still able to be exhibited. It's actually too large to be exhibited now. And I, I actually gesture to the quilt in my book in Taking Turns um, because the well, there was a very large exhibit in Chicago um, during the time when I was working on the unit that I was on. I didn't think about it at the time. I was literally drawing these panels, but it is absolutely right. Like I think about, well, I'm trying to focus back on the question rather than where my brain just runs automatically, which, which I'll finish the thought is like, I think about one of the reasons comics really work for me is that it's a contained space, right? It's a, it's a, you know, a single box that I, I'm working on and I cannot worry about everything else. It's a way of managing the whole, right? And in a way, the quilt gives us that gift of actually being able to, rather than think about the number of people who have died of AIDS, to actually focus on one person and to get a feel for through their loved ones uh, as they made these this quilt, which was of course an act of love as I'd like to think was, are the comic panels that I made this way of, of being able to actually absorb the entirety or not the entirety, but the, the massive experience of this, absorb it sort of like one panel at a time. And so it is really fascinating. And I just going back to the question real quick to make sure I actually address the question and not just rambled my own thoughts. They could be considered a variety of sequential narratives assembled and disassembled. Absolutely. I think it's interesting, you know, thinking about it as dissembling and disassembling a lot of times now with the quilt, what you can, an organization can do is actually order uh, an assemblage of panels or sections of panels that relate to plus the place where the exhibit is being held or the plate, the kind of a organization that's holding an event. You can get pieces of the quilt that do that work. So yeah, I love that. I love that parallel. Thanks for the question. Thank you both. And Rose, we can just talk now. Hi, everybody. That was fantastic. What a, what a lovely, lovely set of presentations. So I just, I can't, you know, I, I would love to speak to you all for hours, but since I shouldn't do that, I'm just going to confine my um, uh, comments to MK or questions and just find myself talking about the very different impact of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa, where I worked it than in rural South Africa, where I worked it, than here, right? So everybody's avoiding hospitals. They're not in hospitals because everybody knows you go to hospital to die. So you only get people who are just on their last legs. And there isn't in any event all the equipment, ventilators, et cetera, et cetera, to keep them alive. And also there's far less equipment between you and the patient, just because you know, the mode of transmission was really recognized and all the nurses and everybody else who's working there has quite a lot of resistance and resilience to things like tuberculosis. So, you know, there wasn't the massive masking practices. Certainly we used gloves, certainly we did for cleaning and so on, but, but not the kind of barrage of materials. And one of the things I just wanted to say is that for obvious reasons, people don't have access to the art stuff that. Um, that is that that we use to make comics, no matter how basic it is. But it did remind me of how much acting was so important to the way that people memorialize things. So what even to this day, what I see happening in in comic um, art in the north in terms of com um, medical comic medicine and so on and Ian's work 
it's actually plays itself out in the same serial way that Charlotte was talking about in the fantastic desire and ability to perform various sequences of somebody's life and to actually become the doctor talking to the patient or become the patient talking to the doctor within a communal setting. Um, so I just, I, I thought that was really interesting that that, that um, was more the way. And I guess the one thing I wanted to say uh, to, the, to everybody is, you know, I do think that when we look at involving patients to this day, it, it's worth remembering GIPA, the great involvement of people living with AIDS in their own treatment. Like the GIPA principles were what way back when, and they're just so important. And what's really interesting is there hasn't been a non-exceptional rollout of them to other forms of disease as much as one might have hoped for. And then the last thing I just wanted to say is, and I just want to throw this out there. One of the things that really helped me about going through the HIV pandemic, um, the South African iteration, and then doing COVID is really understanding that these pandemics are environments, not events. They don't have a firm beginning and ending. And I think, you know, environments in the best architectural sense of the word, such as Anna was speaking about and such as Victoria was speaking about cars, and then in MK's sense of it as being, you know, the environment that leaks through from hospital to outside or from outside to hospital as it happens in South Africa. But it's just like, and, and people's way of containing it is to talk about it as an event, like pre and post, but they don't understand that the, the, the way that I think about it and the way I manage it is to think about it as an environment. You know, you know, I think that environment has that element of additive as opposed to the end of a condition, right? And it also, yeah, speaks to the architectural and other forms of being and way we carry our bodies through a set of pandemic um, conditions. Thank you very much for your comments and questions, Rose. Do you have any comments? our presenters. Anna? Yeah, I mean, I, I could jump in because I was thinking about that with both Victoria and MK's talks as well, the this notion of time and how the way we think about the pandemic or has changed since, since 2020, but then also how like different temporalities can intersect. Uh, I know uh, myself, I was in the UK when pandemic hit, and then I went um, to Norway on field work. And, and being Norwegian and knowing Norway very well, and having been in touch with family and friends in Norway throughout those first six months of the pandemic, I was still very much um, shocked and jarred somehow by, by that kind of jumping into a different community of how people would uh, react, talk and think about, about the pandemic. And I think, you know, that that's still going on, that there are these like different temporalities that continues to exist. So that was a bit of a, a comment, I think. I think uh, Camilla has a question, so. Hello, fabulous. Thank you so much again for um, all of your presentations. And I have a, a question that I would love to hear answered by actually all of you, if that's okay. 
so at the beginning of our roundtable, we uh, we heard Victoria discuss uh, different adjustments of care that happened right during COVID. And there's something that she said that really lingered with me throughout the rest of the presentations. Victoria, you mentioned this moment when the patient meets the ambulance crew, right, and the, the vehicle itself. And that's the first moment that the, this ill person transforms into a patient, right? You're no longer just ill privately, domestically at home, you become a patient. And that is like a whole transformation for the body, right? So, so there's something about the, the artifact, about the machine, the technology that transforms the human in that moment. So I would like, if you can, to refer uh, a bit more to that moment and, and how you're seeing that represented elsewhere, perhaps in other comics or like other forms of technology, how would they change the label of the human, the ill human? And then in that same vein, MK, you mentioned um, how you would draw your patients, right? And that, and that allows you also to maintain some anonymity and to respect HIPAA, right? But also I think that uh, creates this interesting dynamic where you are giving this patient a certain body, right? You are creating a persona for that ill person. So again, like another sort of label or mask or icon for the ill person that could have been like privately ill at home, you know, like they're just like, they're your patient now and they're your drawing. So I'm wondering if you have some thoughts of how you handle that moment of drawing someone to represent many patients perhaps. And finally, um, Anna, you also talked about how um, in, your ex in, the, in this exhibition, we are representing different ways of living with illness, right? And those representations also tell a story of not just a, um, a person with a different body, but it's a person with a different body whose body has to navigate an architectural space that doesn't adapt to them, right? It's not made for them. So it's sort of like the world creates the patient there, right? I'm wondering if, if you have some thoughts on that on, on like the power of architecture, the unfair power of architecture to transform a person into a disabled person just because the architecture doesn't adapt enough. Yeah, these are like three questions, I guess, but I'm just thinking of that moment of label, transforming, drawing, representing the body. I can start if that's okay. Um, yeah, I'm really, uh, actually, you raised some really interesting points that I thought a lot about in making, taking turns. One is this idea that, that one of the things I sought to challenge in the book is this boundary between patient and person, this sort of, you know, someone is in a hospital bed and they are a patient versus they are, you know, in the AIDS crisis that was challenged and, and as I said in my comic about COVID, that that was challenged because that boundary was pre-crossed, right? So they walked onto the unit or were wheeled onto the unit and they were already my next door neighbor or my best friend's ex-lover or whatever. That boundary was pre-crossed, right? And so they weren't just patient. They were also, you had this other context of a relationship. And I, I, I sought to challenge in my book, those boundaries between patient and provider, and, and even gestured to it in the title of the book, which is a reference to what one of the doctors said in an interview about the unit, we're all just people taking turns being the sick. I can be the patient today or the caregiver today, but I could be the patient tomorrow, right? 
And so I, I am really fascinated by that. And I thought about that a lot and I really appreciate, and I love the way you sort of specify the moment that someone walked out of their home into a vehicle, they become, they go from person to, to patient, right? It is really fascinating. Like where, where do we take that turn and where does that stop, right? As we head, head home, um, right? Like it's fascinating to think about that. And then I'll, I'll just close with talking about the, you, you asked about sort of creating the body for my patients. And I thought about this a lot and it's interesting because it actually does come together with the previous mention of the names project. So the, the quilt was the official name of the quilt was the names project. And one of the goals of those panels was to keep their names alive. These people who died prematurely, uh, you know, but I was bound by HIPAA and I can't use their names and I can't keep their names alive. And I struggled with that so much, particularly because one person that I wanted to tell part of their story um, very much appreciated being a, a part of art. And he asked to be photographed by a nurse who was a photographer and wanted to be a part of this kind of artistic process. And I, but he was no longer alive for me to talk with him about how he could be a part of this book, right? And so the, the resolution I found was, I think you kind of gestured to it, was that I actually combined five very real people. Um, so it wasn't just sort of anonymous story with anonymous sort of embodiment, that it was um, five very real people with one aspect of them perhaps being their background story or one being their physical appearance, one being their illness narrative one being their profession, perhaps. So five very real people were combined to be each one patient represented in my book. Uh, so I was very intentional about that kind of embodiment of the story and also trying to attend to all of my ethical and knowing that very much that their story is not my story to tell. I'm there to tell my story. Their story is theirs and not mine. Um, and that's not what the, the aim is. So again, I, I thought a lot about all the things you're talking about in terms of uh, addressing the ethical and legal and all the considerations when doing this kind of complex work. Yeah, I could just, I mean, jump in. I think there's something really interesting to be said about this, this boundary between the private and the public. And in the exhibition, we, we had a lot of, you know, discussions, me as the, the curator, the designers, but also the production team at uh, uh, the Triennale about, you know, how, how do we want people to come into the exhibition? What, what would we want them to, to feel? Uh, and then this idea of, of the beds with, with which the designers came up with, I think was, was a really good way of, of bringing that, that space of relaxation and rest into a space that was actually quite public. The, the exhibition was open. Uh, no, you didn't have to pay for to come into it. So, you know, Anyone could, in principle, when the exhibition was open, come in and, and lie down and and rest. And and again, like I think that that brings it, it links nicely as well to that uh, film with with Abby and her inflatable uh, bathtub and and the struggles that she had to go through with just filling the bathtub, just keeping it clean and and all of that hassle, which would have been a lot more easy if she actually had a bathtub instead. But what's interesting maybe to think is like, how could those like interventions that, you know, Abby did to her bathroom or the, the way that we put the beds into the exhibition, how did they then extend to, to larger scale uh, spaces such as, as public space, uh, maybe even landscapes and, and areas outside of cities, uh, towns, uh, villages and so on. 
actually, I had a question for you, Anna, about the bathtub, but you know, I'll I'll write it in an email, not to to go too much over uh, over time. And to answer to the question, thank you so much, Kamina. That's a very very interesting and important question, I think, to ask. And I came to to that statement uh, through teaching um, graphic novels about cancer, breast cancer specifically, this semester. And uh, you know, I was I was trying to to you know both teach but also understand how how the art there there functioned. And you know, it came to this idea of the moment when the the paramedics or you know the ambulance staff uh, staff comes uh, in to to a home or you know meets a patient. Right there's a certain manipulation of the body, and you know that the the person allows the others to take control in this idea that okay they know better than me, and then you know I I, I surrender this control because I uh, I I need I'm in need right, and there um, for me it was interesting because there's a hierarchical system of care that treats urgency differently. And then there's this surrendering of control in the hope that this hierarchy will meet the emergency and the urgency of care. And I'm sure there are a lot of you know, implications for subjectivity, um, construction, and you know, the way identity can change. And right, as MK said, when, when does it stop, right? But you know, I think there's, it's a really important moment when the ambulance comes and there's that meeting there that we need to talk more about. And also because I think that might impact patient outcomes and the ways treatment, you know, adherence to treatment and everything, it could could be pivotal there. One last thing that I wanted to say here and to just go back to what MK was saying is that, um, you know, when you were talking about representing the characters and, you know, telling telling someone else's story, I thought there was an element of mourning there that happens either, you know, intentional or through the comic medium itself that allows for, for this, you know, grief to, to come out and manifest itself. Um, and I'll end with that. Thank you very much for all the presenters. And I think we can also note uh, it down that care and mourning has the same etymological meaning. I think you just give us this rich presentation to think more about and more in detail about care. And obviously care is something always shared, but not necessarily in equal and the same in the same terms. I think you just gave us many things to think about and many uh, references to just go through. So thank you very much for being here. And thank you very much for all the audience. And I will just leave the last words to Hannah. Hi, everyone. I just want to say thank you all so much for your support during the Configuration series, both this roundtable and the one we had in March. I just wanted to quickly thank not only our panelists today, but also the people who actually made this thing happen. So specifically, I'd like to thank, of course, Merve, Camila Gutierrez, Mike DeLeo and Rosemary Avist for their help just making flyers, getting the word out there, and of course, setting up these wonderful panels. So we could not do this um, without a group effort. Please stay in touch. And thank you all again so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you. And Hannah, thank you so much to you as the uh, president of Liberal Arts Collective.
you uh, had uh, just great organization skills for this event. So thank you for being here. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. A big shout out to the LAC team for organizing co-figurations this year, namely Camilla Gutierrez, Michael DeLeo, Merve Shen, Rosemary Avist, and Hannah Matangos. Be first in the know about upcoming events, get involved, and keep in touch with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at LibArtsCo, that's L-I-B-A-R-T-S-C-O.